Welcome to the Arsenal Democracy, a podcast from Hudson Institute. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. My guest today is Hudson Institute Senior Fellow, John Lee. Previously, he was the Senior National Security Advisor to the Australian Foreign Minister. Notably, he was the lead advisor to Australia's 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper, the country's first comprehensive foreign policy blueprint since 2003. In this conversation, we discuss his recent Hudson report, co-authored with Lavina Lee, Success in the Struggle Against the People's Republic of China. What China has demanded of Australia is not just that we leave alone the issue of Taiwan, not just that we remain silent about Hong Kong, not just that we remain silent about human rights in abusers in Xinjiang. China has actually demanded that certain Australian domestic policy settings be changed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if we didn't care about the foreign policy, China wants a direct say in key elements of our domestic decision making. We also discussed the US Australia relationship, AUKUS, and how both countries fit into the national security challenges of the Indo-Pacific region. Hope you all enjoy this conversation. John Lee, welcome to the Arsenal of Democracy. Wonderful to be here. We're going to start by discussing a report you recently put out. We're going to hit a bunch of different topics across the Indo-Pacific region, obviously Australia, but your report very specifically uses the word success instead of victory when it comes to policy concerning China. Help us understand that context. Yeah, I normally don't quill about words, but in this case, I think it's important because there's a whole industry or cottage industry of reports and assessments about what victory looks like against China. I didn't use the word victory because you know, when I look ahead the next 10, 20 years, short of some catastrophic war situation, which I'm not talking about, but when I look ahead the next 10, 20 years, I don't think either side, United States and its allies on the one side and China on the other, are going to achieve victory, right? Victory would mean the capitulation of the other side. It would mean uh, uncontested dominance for the victorious side. I don't think that's the kind of Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific that we're looking at, you know, unless something dramatic like war happens. So I wanted to use what uh, the term success, you know, what the success looks like. And success assumes that competition and rivalry hasn't ended. It's continuing. You know, both sides are still bumping against each other. But in those sorts of conditions, I just wanted to talk about, you know, what what American success uh, looks like in a region. You are writing at a time that Australia itself is considering its policy towards China. How should we separate Australian definitions of success from American definitions, or are they similar? They're similar, but there are a few differences because of, of size and, and geography. United States is obviously not in Asia. It's got inherent interest in Asia, but it's not in Asia. So for the United States, success is, is really more about a favorable balance of power, uh, that it can still write the rules and enforce the rules of, of, of how things work in a region. For Australia, success is probably a bit more primal. Success really means that we're not being coerced, um, that Chinese 
uh, putting up illegal tariffs against us, that China is not interfering in our elections, essentially that we are left to exist in the way we want to exist. We Yes, we interact with China and the region, but we have that sense of sovereignty um, and autonomy. So the, the definition of success or the mindset of success in Australia is more about wanting to be left alone to do what it is we do. For the United States, it's much more a global perspective about maintaining some level of leadership and preeminence. So if we aren't in a mentality of victory or we imagine that we've made it through the next 10 to 20 years without a catastrophic conflict, how would you define what a successful Indo-Pacific would look like then in that context? Sure. If you look at the question strategically or militarily, one of the disadvantages for the United States is that it's a distant power, right? So it has to travel thousands of miles to actually be in, in our region. It's a disadvantage because you have to uh, have the support and acquiescence of allies and partners to maintain your position. So for me, for the United States at least, uh, the United States needs as many allies and partners in the region as possible to to sustain its forward positions into Asia. And if you contrast that with China, I mean, China's obviously in Asia. It's, you know, in a sense, the heart of Asia geographically. Um, so China's a permanent presence. China, in a sense, doesn't need the support of allies in the same way. You could even argue that China doesn't actually need allies in the same way because the Ch- Chinese and the People's Liberation Army are already there, you know, by, by g- geographical definition. So for the United States, success means that it must encourage, sometimes even coerce allies and partners to support its presence in the region. And if it can do that, then um, the next question becomes, you know, how do you maintain a favourable balance of power? And then that's where the military capability and economic factors come into play. I'll, I'll just mention this one thing as well, that even though I'm Australian, I focus on the United States as much as I do, because if you do the mass in our region, China spends more on its uh, military defence each year than the whole of Asia combined. So if the United States actually isn't around, there is no possibility of restraining China. So in a sense, Australia and the United States are aligned because what we both want is a permanent American presence and Australia is doing as much as possible to achieve that. But because China is far more powerful than it used to be, the United States can't really achieve uncontested dominance as it did in the second half in the second half of the previous century, so the United States does need other allies and partners to do a lot more than they have done in the past. I'm really interested in the compare and contrast between your use of the word encourage versus coercion. So, like, let's start with the positive. Like, what does it look to encourage um, allies? And then we'll get into what does the coercive side of that look like. Encourage really means that you give incentives to allies to. Um, support the alliance and support the American presence. That may be economic incentives, um, that may be favourable trade agreements, or it just may be to remind allies and partners that there's a mutual self-interest, that the commerce and the trade and the investment that goes on in a region, that just wouldn't occur and prosperity wouldn't occur without an American presence. Because 
for commerce and economics to to function well, um, you need order and security. And without the Americans being there, you wouldn't get that. So, it's, so that's that's more about both incentivizing allies and partners and getting allies and partners to think rationally about their own self-interest. Now, coercion is not normally a word you associate with allies, right? It's normally something you associate with enemies. And when I say coercion, I'm not talking about America threatening Australia, you know, that it's going to um, uh, engage in any force against Australia. Coercion without, uh, against allies is more about withdrawing benefits, or providing opportunity costs. So, for example, this is just a hypothetical example. If Australia wasn't willing to be as uh, cooperative as a strategic allied partner of the United States as it currently is, I could imagine a situation where um, the United States would offer privileged benefits to more willing allies such as Japan, for example, and Australia would miss out. So that's the opportunity cost part. And what are those benefits? Oh, it may be uh, enhanced technology access, um, which America still leads. It could be enhanced access to the American market. It could be more secure or more reliable security guarantees, for example, those sorts of opportunity costs. When it comes to direct coercion of allies, Mm -hmm. the most coercive tool if I can put it that way, the, that the Americans have with allies in Asia is the um, promise to defend them mm-hmm. in the event that they're being attacked. And if you look at the um, alliances that the United States has with its treaty allies in my region, Australia, Philippines, Japan, South Korea, Thailand, nowhere in the documents of these alliances does it actually guarantee that the United States will come to the aid of its allies. It's not like NATO where the uh, United States is obliged to uh, under, under law. So what that means is that allies in a region have to continually ensure they are uh, as useful as possible to the United States for the United States to offer this implied security guarantee. So that's what I mean by coercion, that mm-hmm. it, it's, not, it's not an overt coercion, but it's effectively to say if you don't, help us out as allies, um, we won't be there for you and and you'll have to face the might and the wrath of the Chinese Communist Party and People's Liberation Army by yourself. Yeah, and that actually leads into the question of what are our strategic expectations of countries like Australia? Because to your point, if we weren't offering security guarantees, well, what security environment are Australians concerned about that doesn't already have to do with China, which is what's driving our security and strategic interests in the first place. So I'm trying to understand kind of like that part. That makes more sense for me in the case of a country like Thailand, but like, you know, right. go from there. With smaller countries like Australia, in the past, they've taken a fairly narrow view of their interests. So for example, for decades in Australia from the 1970s onwards, the main purpose of our military forces was really just to prevent anyone invading Australia. Right. So, yes, of, of course, that, that makes sense. That's quite rational. Given the rise of China and given the, the given Chinese power and, and the scale of Chinese ambitions, the United States is looking for its allies to take a broader view to responsibility. So, for example, the United States uh, would like Australia to not just be concerned about preventing any kind of hostile uh, invasion of its country, uh, it would like Australia to take a broader responsibility for what happens in the South Pacific, 
in Southeast Asia and potentially in Northeast Asia in hotspots such as the Taiwan Straits. And that's not something which traditionally American allies in Asia have been prepared for. Their military forces aren't pre- haven't been designed to, to take that broader view. And that's what you're seeing now that, you know, the AUKUS agreement between uh, Australia and the United States, the reason, the rationale of that agreement is for the United States and the United Kingdom to assist Australia to acquire the capabilities to, uh, for Australia to take a, a broader role and responsibility beyond our immediate periphery. So that's an example of an ally stepping up. That's an example of what the United States wants and needs from an ally. And in the broader question of, you know, what the success looks like, United States essentially needs more countries to actually do that, to do what Australia is doing, to do what Japan's doing. It's actually quite a big reversal from uh, four or five decades since, you know, the 1960s. In In the 1960s up till the end of the last century, America had uncontested dominance. Like no one could really challenge the Americans in Asia. China wasn't yet as powerful. The Soviet Union never had quite the Navy to challenge the United States. And what that meant was the United States was actually happy to encourage nations in a region to effectively de-emphasize the military element of power. So the United States actually wanted nations to focus more on economics and trade rather than building up their militaries. Now it needs us to do the opposite. And so there has been quite a fundamental and difficult adjustment of mindsets in the region. And some countries have done it better than others. Japan and Australia have decided that they will step up. Countries like South Korea and Philippines are not uh, as yet uh, still undecided as to whether they will play that broader role that the United States needs them to play. You know, speaking of the Cold War in the 1960s, I'm curious if you could enlighten me and listeners around Australia's post-World War II security posture in the first place. You know, Australia was involved in the Korean War. Um, Australians fought in Vietnam. I'm guessing there's just kind of a gap um, post-1970s. Just give us a full picture. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very important sort of point and piece of history to to, um, go through uh, very quickly. Because as you mentioned, in the Korean War and the Vietnam War, um, Australia was very committed. Um, you know, it sent troops, it lost a lot of blood and treasure, just as the United States did in these wars. Uh, but that was a time when we believed, I think quite legitimately, there was a existential threat of a communist advance through the whole of Asia. So there was a time when nations uh, and, and, and systems were actually bumping up against each other um, and, and trying to achieve uh, dominance over the other. Post-Vietnam, uh, and, and particularly post the um, uh, implosion of the Soviet Union, as I mentioned, the United States really didn't have any rivals. Mm-hmm. If you look at the nature of wars that the United States and Australia have been involved in together, you, if you look at Iraq, for example, the two Iraq wars, the war in Afghanistan, more broadly the war on terror, yes, Australia was with the United States, but the Australian contribution was actually pretty small. You know, we sent some of our elite special forces, which are very valuable, but it's a very small contribution, even though it's important. Uh, we sent some ships and and, and, and other uh, niche weaponry and capabilities. 
but the contribution wasn't a, a, a big deal from the point of view of, of size and scale for the Australians. It didn't really challenge us to significantly change the, the structure and posture of our military forces. Now we're talking about a potential rival in China where, you know, it won't be enough for Australia just to send a few special forces, a few planes, a few ships. Australia has to be part of an integrated war effort against a high-end advanced enemy, which United States has not faced um, for, for quite a long time now. So that, that's, that's the big difference. Yes, Australia has been with the United States in every major war for the last 100 years, but um, the situation in East Asia regarding China is very different from uh, any obligation or challenge that we face really since uh, the post-Vietnam War period. And I should mention as well that like with many countries, China is our largest trading partner. So Australia, like many other countries in the region, um, effectively has to start planning what you might call a countering or even containment effort against a country that is our largest trading partner. That in itself is complex, but it also means that it involves risk and potential costs to Australia that wasn't the case when it was the Soviet Union, when it was Iraq, when it was Afghanistan. Yeah, and I like framing those post-war engagements in terms of stopping the spread of communism. To understand the current environment then, what would you say the Australian concern is in the case of a more hegemonic China? Because the, I don't think anyone's claiming we're going to have um, communism or whatever you describe the Chinese system today in Australia in the same way. So how would Australians understand the threat? You know, China is different to the Soviet Union in a sense that China doesn't pose an existential threat to most countries. It's not looking to invade most countries. Yes, it has disputes with Japan and some of the Southeast Asian states over some maritime territory, a significant maritime territory, but it's not threatening to invade them. It is threatening to invade Taiwan. That That's that's a, a unique problem in and of itself. But if you look what we're afraid of, it is the inability to exercise our sovereignty. So, for example, Australia has been through a pretty tough time with China in the last five years because Australia have taken some decisions which... Um, have which Chinese don't like. You know, for example, we took the lead in opposing Chinese actions in the South China Sea. We banned the Chinese company Huawei from our 5G network. We took measures to uh, counter Chinese foreign interference in, in, in our institutions and so on. What China has demanded of Australia is not just that we leave alone the issue of Taiwan, not just that we remain silent about Hong Kong, not just that we remain silent about human rights in abusers in Xinjiang. China has actually demanded that certain Australian domestic policy settings be changed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if we didn't care about the foreign policy, China wants a direct say in key elements of our domestic decision-making. So, for example, in November 2021, The Chinese embassy, obviously with the uh, urging of the government in Beijing, the Chinese embassy released what became infamously known as the 14 grievances and enlisted 14 things that Australia must do 
for China to cease the coercion of Australia and to cease the tariffs and the bans on Australian exports. Now, of those 14 points, nine of them dealt with domestic policy, dealt with our domestic policy. So that's what Australia's afraid of. It's not afraid of Chinese ships invading us. Mm-hmm. It's afraid that China will gain sufficient ascendancy in the region uh, militarily, strategically, but also institutionally, even commercially to dictate onto other countries rules by which they must exist. And that includes what sorts of domestic decisions that they are or are not allowed to make with respect to uh, Chinese interests. So that kind of situation uh, would not be tolerable for Australia. You know, we don't have a territorial dispute with China, but we cannot tolerate a regional order around us where effectively we can't function as a normal sovereign country. Something I'm curious about if we're discussing the region, where does New Zealand play into this story? There's a bit of a joke, um, maybe there's some truth to it, that New Zealand is sort of like uh, what Canada is to you. (laughs) And that is that New Zealand has the buffer of Australia to sort of ignore geopolitical realities happening to its north, beyond Australia. In the same way that Canada, maybe it's unfair to Canadians, but in the same way that Canada isn't as interested in uh, geostrategic affairs, partly because the United States is there. So to answer your question, New Zealand used to be a fully-fledged ally of the United States. But a few decades ago, and it continues today, they have largely opted out of behaving as a joint partner and ally of the United States. So, for example, New Zealand doesn't allow United States uh, nuclear-propelled vessels to port in its docks. Um, New Zealand has a far softer set of policies towards China than either Australia or the United States would like. New Zealand doesn't really voice its concerns or even its views on issues such as South China Sea or the Taiwan Straits or the East China Sea. You know, New Zealand is still counted as, of course, a a friendly country to us. It's still in the Five Eyes intelligence grouping, uh, along with Canada, United Kingdom, United States, Australia. But for the moment anyway, it's largely opted out of playing a broader strategic role. I don't think that necessarily will hold. I do think that eventually leaders, bureaucrats and the population in New Zealand will realise that you can't really opt out because if you do, it's not as if you don't suffer any costs or risk. Um, And I should mention as well that, you know, go back to 2015 and before, Australia actually had a pretty similar mindset to the New Zealanders. Uh, In fact, there were concerns with the United States that Australia was uh, turning neutral (laughs) So, you know, countries do change policies um, and I I, I do think, I don't know when, um, but I do think New Zealand will eventually um, come to accept that they need to take a larger role as well. I think what's interesting about that 2015, 2016 era story is that the United States and Canada are probably quite similar in the sense that Chinese 
efforts at economic and cultural coercion and actually fermented a backlash yep. um, within the domestic political systems of both countries. So I'm curious, is there any possibility that a shift in the New Zealand position would be affected by economic, cultural coercion, political coercion? How does that play into things? Well, I, I think it's only a matter of time before New Zealand does something that offends China not because they want to offend China, but just by m merely asserting your sovereignty, when it bumps up against Chinese interests, uh, the Chinese instinct is generally to coerce that smaller country. Now, some countries when they co coerce, submit, right? They That's why co that's why China coerces some countries just give in. In the past, New Zealand has done that, but I do sense that there's a growing realisation amongst both the strategic elites in the country but the population that they will have to make some difficult choices. And, and you know, obviously you need a government prepared to do that, just as occurred in Australia. You had governments in uh, 2016 onward, which I was part of, that were prepared to sort of make different decisions to push back against China. That hasn't yet happened in New Zealand, but um, I, I, I do think it will just because, yes, New Zealand can opt out of foreign affairs if it wants to. It can pretend that the troubles in Northeast Asia don't exist. But sooner or later, the Chinese Communist Party tends to make demands of your domestic settings. And New Zealand is similarly constructed as a nation uh, and, and its culture to Australia, sooner or later, um, its political classes and its population uh, won't, won't tolerate that. At the start of the conversation, we, I don't want to say we cheated, but we kind of just smoothed over the pressure or difficult points over the next 10 years. We're saying, oh, assuming there isn't a catastrophic conflict, assuming the big questions don't come into play in the latter half of this decade. But let's kind of go to that awkward reality. If we're hoping for a vision or a model of success that doesn't require um, conflict, what do you think has to happen over the next five or 10 years to avoid in, something in, like right. that? Right. In, in, in a way, you know, talking, whether you're talking about avoiding a catastrophic situation, which is war, or whether you're talking just about, you know, a set of arrangements that constitute a vision of success, it's kind of the same thing or similar things because, whether a war occurs or not, we have an agent. We have agency there, right? So, the more American allies and partners are willing to step up, the more they're willing to invest in their militaries, and not just invest in militaries, but to actually position their militaries in areas where they need to be positioned, and to signal intent that they would actually uh, participate in conflict. The higher the chance you have of deterring China. In in a sense, I'm not discounting that that war can happen, but I guess I make the argument that the more successful you become in the terms that I've outlined, the less likely war becomes. And but if I'm wrong and war begins anyway for whatever reason, you're still in a better position because then you have changed and affected the balance of power uh, in a way that's more favorable to yourself. Um, so in a, in a sense, deterrence and success is sort of the same thing. Deterrence is how we get to that end state, ideally yeah, in the yeah, 2030s yeah. that we're starting with. Yeah. So the next question, we kind of uh, 
moved over rather quickly, but the conversation around AUKUS and, and the ways that that is changing Australia's strategic position. I'd love for you just to go into that. It's been a you know few years since the actual unveiling of the policy, so it'd be helpful to get an update there. Uh, most people associate AUKUS with the Australian purchase of, or future purchase of American nuclear-propelled submarines. And yes, that is significant because if Australia purchases these submarines and actually operate them, it allows Australia to play a far more expansive military and strategic role than we have ever played. Although that, that happy scenario also assumes that the United States can build more submarines for yourself, right, which is mm-hmm. important that you do so. But AUKUS is divided into two p- pillars, the submarines and everything else. The submarines, we don't plan to take possession of your Virginia-class submarines till sometime in 2030s. Right. And most people, including myself in Australia, believe that the real danger period in terms of deterring a potential war with China is probably in the next five to seven years, which is actually before we would get these submarines. So, and, and by the way, we believe that just because we make the assessment that Xi Jinping is becoming increasingly impatient to what he calls resolved Taiwan question. In fact, he's uh, stated that he intends to resolve it during his lifetime, which basically means seizing Taiwan during his lifetime. At the moment, the military gap between the People's Liberation Army and Taiwan and and other allies is, is quite wide. So there is a temptation there for Xi Jinping. But over time, in the 30s and onwards, that gap will narrow. So as an aside, that's the reason why, you know, we think the next five, seven years is probably... Uh, the critical one. So back to AUKUS, there's what what we call a pillar pillar two, which is a non-submarine stuff. So these are things like long-range missiles, the use of artificial intelligence for military purposes, uh, offensive cyber capabilities, unmanned drones. These are the sorts of weapons that need to come online in significant scale over the next five years or so. And these are the weapons that will deter China because... If the Chinese think that they can launch a war against Taiwan and win quickly and relatively painlessly, that they're going to be more tempted to do it. They don't want to get themselves into a Russia-Ukraine situation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the idea then is to just at the minimal ensure that China cannot and knows it cannot win a quick and clean a relatively cost-free war in, in invading Taiwan. So this is where AUKUS comes in. The idea is that uh, Australia, U- United Kingdom and United States will share military technology to develop these capabilities, to produce these capabilities, to position these capabilities. Uh, and if we can do that, then, then of course, once again, deterrence becomes far more likely. If we can't do that, then that military gap remains and uh, uh, Xi Jinping is far more tempted to, to use force. Look, AUKUS should best be understood as a comprehensive military technology sharing agreement with 23 countries that's designed to be as seamless as possible. Um, you know, these three countries, the AUKUS countries, of course, already have an alliance. They are already intelligence partners and part of the Five Eyes. Uh, AUKUS is sort of a continuation of that, except applied to military technology and production. Nearing the end, another aspect of your report beyond just the uh, 
definition of success is just the conflicting understandings of what war is and the nature of it. I'd love for you just to articulate kind of the differences between the American and Australian understanding of what a state of war looks like um, versus the Chinese one and the implications for the set of policy choices Australians are going to have to make in the next right. few years. The, the Americans and the Australians, you know, and which is in line with uh, Western tradition history, uh, there is a strict demarcation between wartime and peacetime. So at the moment, because we're not firing weapons, uh, firing bullets at each other, we're in a state of peace. And state of war only exists when either you formally declare war or you start destroying stuff on the other side. The Chinese don't think about warfare like this. Because they think about warfare as a continual struggle. And that the kinetic aspect of war, that is missiles and tanks and bullets, that's only one element of warfare. So the Chinese, you know, have, have quite advanced notions of political warfare, which is not just propaganda, but it's about uh, shaping the institutions and thinking and decision-making of the enemy. And to be clear, they do define the United States and Australia as the enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, already. They already talk about economic warfare. Economic warfare doesn't actually mean that, you know, they're trying to bankrupt the American economy. What economic warfare in their mind means is that every economic interaction, you think only in terms of relative gains and acquiring of leverage. As you know, the United States and China has, in in many ways, a, a very productive and integrated economic relationship. In the United States until a few years ago, that was seen as a win-win situation. In uh, the Chinese mentality, or at least Chinese Communist Party's mentality, uh, it it is seen as an engagement with the enemy in which the Chinese is trying to acquire greater relative advantage uh, and leverage over the American enemy. So that's what I mean by saying that there are differences in, in the way they think about war. They already think they're in a state of war with us. And the idea actually is that the Chinese are hoping that they win without fighting, that they win and winning for them is, you know, achieving uh, dominance and preeminence. They win without having to uh, actually spill blood. So I think that's actually the perfect topic to end on because we've articulated that our perspective and objective is we deter a conflict and can make it through um, this particularly perilous five to seven year period. And you've just pointed out that from the Chinese perspective, you would want to avoid bloodshed when through other means. That brings in the economic um, and decoupling uh, centric story that you articulated here. So let's assume, going back to the beginning, we could make it through this period without an actual conflict. How will the economic side of the picture, how could it play out? Most broadly, short of a kinetic war, there will still be substantial economic interaction between the United States and China and Australia because China is too central um, an economy. It's too integrated in global supply chains to not have those interactions, right? So I don't think we need to talk about, and we can't really talk about just a a hard state of decoupling with China because that's not going to happen, right? The United States can't produce all the things that at once. It may not be China, but China will be part of the supply chain equation. But the way I would encourage um, leaders in the United States and Australia to think about things is that 
any sort of interaction with China, including economic interaction, we need to think in terms of relative gains. So rather than asking, you know, what do we get out of this? We should ask, what do we get out of this relative to what the Chinese get out of this? Because it is a ceaseless competition and rivalry with them. So that still means we interact with them, but uh, we interact in such a way that it really has to be more advantageous to us than them. That's that's that in a broader sense. Broader sense that I think how we should think about it. But there are some particular elements um, where I think there will. Oh, sorry, there should and there will be a hard decoupling and it's happening already. That is around a lot of the high-tech advanced sectors. The, the most well-known one is the Science and Chips Act where the United States has effectively banned or at least restricted the import of advanced chips to China. The reason why they've done that is because these advanced chips will be essential to a lot of the products and sectors that will determine future wealth and power over the next 10, 20 years. I think that's entirely appropriate. And these sorts of tech decoupling policies will occur. It's occurred in 5G, for example. Chinese firms such as Huawei, uh, ZTE, uh, they're not involved in the 5G networks of you know most Western countries. This state of tech decoupling, you know, it goes against a sort of neoliberal economic laissez-faire mindsets of the 1990s and 2000s but that was because in 1990s and 2000s we don't we didn't have that same level of geopolitical competition Mm -hmm. that we have now so we have entered truly a state of geopolitical great power competition it's not that similar to the Cold War in the sense that China is is a much different beast because it's, it's a much more important economic partner um, and supply chain partner. But that's the point, I guess, of the report that we're involved not necessarily in, a, well, we're not involved in a state where the two sides don't have anything to do with, 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 with each other. They do, but that doesn't make it less of a struggle. You know, we're involved, we are involved in a struggle for a dominance and we just have to accept that that is just going to be the relentless, ceaseless state of affairs, whether we like it or not. So here's what I want your closing thought on. If the black swan adjacent event that could shift this picture or this story that we're telling would be kinetic conflict probably over Taiwan, it seems like the other category that's getting increasingly play right now has been the economic side of the picture, particularly the state of China's economy and its ability to continue its uh, growth trajectory over the past several decades. What should be our baseline assumption projecting forward about the Chinese economy? For more than a decade, I have written uh, and and predicted that the Chinese economy will uh, structurally decline. It will meet the same or similar sorts of problems that the Japanese economy met. Um, You know, overinvestment, very inefficient investment, uh, demographic issues, uh, like too much debt, suppress domestic spending, domestic consumption, and so on. So I do think the Chinese are in a structural, not a cyclical, but a structural declining growth. Mm-hmm. Now, the way I think about that, I, I, I don't necessarily foresee some kind of, you know, great collapse of its economy or the Chinese Communist Party because they do have means to sort of manage this decline. I don't think they have means to reverse the decline, but they have means to manage it. But China is already big and strong enough to 
present a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the way I think about what's going on in China now that you're hearing about the property sector troubles and so on, demographic issues, my baseline is not that it's going to be a collapse of China and therefore we don't have to worry about anything. My baseline is these sorts of problems that China has actually presents us with new sources of leverage and new ways to outcompete China. And, and this is actually an advance in thinking in a sense that, you know, it wasn't so long ago that many people were talking about the inevitable rise and rise of China, that um, resisting China was impossible, that China was undeterrable. The woes that China are going through now economically and domestically, they show me that China, like any other country, has weaknesses. Uh, In the case of China, there are uh, sort of unique weaknesses, weaknesses because of the scale of the problems. Uh, And no, this doesn't stop the competition from happening. In fact, it gives us more options to try to constrain the Chinese from doing certain things. That is an excellent place to leave it. John Lee, thank you for joining us on Arsenal of Democracy. Great. Great to talk with you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. We'll be back with weekly episodes.